Hello, and welcome to Entertainment Weekly's Best of Shows, the podcast where we discuss the best of television and the rest of television. Specifically, we are currently in the midst of our own little mini-series called The Best of the Decade, where we talk about the television that obsessed us, uh, that satisfied us, that left us sorrowful for one reason or another uh, in this very exciting decade. I'm Darren Franich, a TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, joined as always by my brilliant colleague, Kristen Baldwin, my fellow critic. Kristen, this week we're talking about series finales, and I don't know about you, but I- I've been shedding some tears rewatching oh. some of these episodes. <laughs> oh my God, I was a wreck at my desk. I cried <laughs> off my mascara. <laughs> People were worried about me. I was like, it's fine. I'm just watching it. <laughs> when, we, when we were kind of putting together our episode lineup for this miniseries, Kristen, you know, we were talking about doing best finales, best series finales. And it's funny because without really thinking about it, I sort of thought that making a list of five great ones, I'm going to give my list, you're going to give your list. Um, I thought it'd be easy because I, I tend to assume as a rule that series finales are, if nothing else, they're not what I love best about most shows. You know, like right. so often, so often, even the shows that I absolutely love, you know, when it comes time to their, for their finale, I'm kind of like, you know, that was good, that was fine. Sometimes it was not so good. Sometimes the show is years past its prime. But, but I was quite surprised that this was a very difficult process and ordeal trying to go through a lot of shows that I really loved with great finales um, I'm not going to be able to talk about today and I hope you'll be able to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is hard because, uh, you know, and also finales are really, really hard, especially when it's a show that uh, people love. It's hard to get it right because you can't please everyone. And, uh, you know, certainly you can look at semi-recent examples to, for that, like Game of Thrones and a little farther back, The Sopranos. So they're tough episodes anyway, even if the show is at the top of its game. So uh, it's hard to, but there are actually some really good, uh, you know, fairly recent examples. And yeah, I had a hard time narrowing mine down to five and had to leave some on the cutting room floor. My first one, Kristen, is uh, is extremely recent, uh, and uh, I'm 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 already starting off with something that may be a bit of a cheat uh, because we are talking about television, and it turns out things never really end. So I, I think my first show is still a series finale, but but recent news implies that it may not be for very long. So it's a, it's a, it's good that I get to talk about it now. Uh, but on September third, twenty eighteen, Adventure Time, Cartoon Network's absolute oh. classic, nonstop fun panorama cartoon fantasy, science fiction, post-apocalyptic, what-have-you story about a boy and his dog aired its series finale. And Kristen, this was the brand of series finale that was just everything plus the kitchen sink. You kind of had appearances from every single character from the show's many, many years run. Um, It was a sort of epic final battle that then turned into a different epic final battle. Um, (laughs) But what what I love about it so much, and the reason why, to me, uh, really kind of unique among the kind of epic sagas of the 20 teens of, of which there were many um, this one sort of went huge but still seemed to maintain the kind of heart and wit and fun of, of the show at its best um, and uh, Adventure Time also in its finale featured a song called Time Adventure which was written by uh, it was it, it, it was written by uh, Rebecca Sugar who had worked on the show and then and of course I went on to, to create Steven Universe another really fine 
Cartoon Network show. And Kristen, every time I hear this oh. song, I start crying now. It is so incredible, and it, it feels very true to the show's spirit that the singing of this song is basically how they defeat the great evil oh. of the universe. Um, so I, 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 this is a show that I have, of course, proselytized about to you considerably, uh, but I, I have to feature it because the finale is just so wonderful. Oh, well, I mean, I have only seen, you know, a few episodes of this show, uh, you know, in part because Fred, my son, watches them sometimes. And it's And like, I laugh when I he- overhear it and he seems really into it. And now he's like down a rabbit hole of terrible YouTubers. I can't even. <laughs> but uh, it seems like such a sweet and lovely and just like thoughtful and, and really just emotionally sort of original show and so i you know i think it makes sense that it's on your list i know you love it i know how much you love it and i love it like just sort of i love how much you love it it makes me happy (laughs) uh what's your first uh uh uh, series finale well uh, i'm probably gonna start crying talking about it uh it's uh friday night lights uh which you know as we know like it had some rough seasons it had some good seasons it moved to direct tv but the series finale, which aired July 15th, 2011, is called Always. And uh, I hadn't watched Friday Night Lights since I hadn't watched the finale, rewatched it since it aired in 2011. And within 30 seconds of rewatching it, I was like sucked back in. It's the opening, it's the press conference about state. I was immediately like, oh God, I love these people. The characters are like friends that you, even if you haven't seen them, for a decade, you know, as soon as you start talking, you you can pick right up where you left off. And so there's so many things to love about this show uh, and this finale. But what moves me the most generally is the marriage between Tammy and Eric Taylor, played yeah. by Connie Britton and, uh, of course, Kyle Chandler. It is hands down the best marriage on TV, I think, maybe ever. Um, it manages somehow to be both realistic and aspirational. Like they have realistic fights. One of my favorite lines of all time is, don't whisper, yell at me. Um, because she whisper yells at him. Don't whisper yell at me. Um, but they're also like they d- deeply, truly love each other, even for all the bickering and just the you know the the day to day stuff that makes a marriage hard. And in this episode, it's never more so, you know, clear about how much they love each other because Tammy is offered a job in Philadelphia, and you know. Eric, Coach Taylor, has to take this whole journey from Texas forever to, and this is a literal quote, it's your turn. Will you take me to Philadelphia with you? Like <sighs> he's, oh, it's so good. It's so good. He starts, you know, like we, we live in Texas. My job is here. And, and you know, there is a moment they go, it, there's a whole other storyline where, you know, Saracen proposes to Julie in front of the diner and it's so sweet. And she says yes. And, and you know, Eric, Eric and Tammy are like, this is insane. You're both too young. So they take him out to dinner and, and Julie says, you know, the reason your your marriage is the marriage that I aspire to have. You guys are the reason I know that we can make it because, you know, you guys compromise and you love each other and you support each other. And Tammy has to leave the restaurant. She's so upset. And and he comes out there and she just says to him, it's my turn, babe. It's my turn. Like how many, mm. how many times have they moved for him? How many, you know, the marriage has been around their job and his job. And by the end, he, he realizes it's your turn. Will you, know, you Kristen, take me to Philadelphia with you? 
you know, you really nailed it. What's great about their dynamic is they really kind of make the constant struggle look aspirational. Yes. You know, because for them, I mean, they are so good together, but they are constantly throughout the show, you know, they're struggling financially, they're struggling with their jobs, they're struggling with their town, they're struggling with their team. You know, yeah. there's all these things on top of raising, you know, two daughters. There's just so much that they have to work on. And somehow they make that seem really fun. <laughs> and, you know, even even though it is still very difficult. And I just think the finale really captures that while also doing something that I love. I love when finales do this. Um, they kind of have the ending where it's like everyone everyone is kind of just continuing with their lives yes. at the end of Friday Night Lights. And in fact, everyone is often very in a different, in a different place. Some people are moving away. Um, you know, it feels as if the show kind of gives everyone this grace note, but it doesn't try to say, and this is the end of the great story of their lives. Right. There's, there's the quality of kind of the ongoing circle, um, which I just think this finale it just handles so well. Yes, I mean, one of the things I look for in a series finale is like the feeling that all of the characters are going to be okay yeah like they don't have to have a fairy tale ending but i i want to know where they are where they're going and you know with this yeah everyone's set up to be okay you know it, it's not perfect you know but you see that they're in you know tyra and tim seem to be working their way back to each other julie and matt are going to be okay you know they they go to philadelphia and it looks like you know coaches Taylor is coaching again. Like everyone's moving on. We even know Jess is going to probably get a job at, on a team in Dallas because the coach is going to uh -huh. put in a word for her. So like everyone's <laughs> going to be okay. And like, I think that's partly why people were so frazzled by the Sopranos ending, you know, because like you don't, it, it didn't give you an answer. Like, did he die? Did he live? Did he get arrested? Like, we don't know. And that's part of the genius of it, but it's also part of the you know, sort of polarizing nation, nature of it. Yeah, I, this is definitely a a very different kind of finale, but one that I do really appreciate. Yes. And Kristen, I I, I want to kind of spring off of this to another show that I love, which much like Friday Night Lights started on NBC, but did not end there. <laughs> uh, I'm talking, of course, about Community, yes. the absolutely wonderful NBC sitcom created by Dan Harmon, uh, which uh, ultimately, after a, a really kind of unique five season run on NBC, which involved the firing of Dan Harmon and the hiring of Dan Harmon. It ultimately aired uh, its final, uh, thus far, sixth season uh, on Yahoo Screen, um, which uh, is no longer around, unfortunately, which is too bad because uh, it, I, I will always be thankful to them for uh, giving us the last season of Community, which was quite good and which I still think people need to kind of discover a little bit. Um, but the ultimate finale, which aired on June 2nd, 2015, is really kind of incredible and similar but different to what Friday Night Lights did. Um, Community by this point was very much a kind of meta sitcom. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of constantly kind of putting these characters into situations that were very clearly TV-like. And this finale is essentially all of the characters are trying to pitch what a seventh season would look like. <laughs> And th this is, you know, it is totally through the rabbit hole and you're kind of seeing what each character would want their life to be. And of course, it gets crazier and crazier as it goes. Um, but what I loved about Community and what I think is still really unique about it is that while it was playing all of these really cerebral, um, you know, uh, your mind kind of turning inside out games, there was always something very emotional about it. And with this finale... 
um, it really kind of captures the feeling of what it's like when everything is changing and you don't want it to change. Um, yeah. You know, you, you have the main character played by Joel McHale. He's starting to feel as if he'll kind of be left behind at the community college. But by, by, by this point, um, you know, uh, Yvette Nicole Brown and Donald Glover's characters ha- had already left the show. In this finale, you find out the two other characters are leaving. You don't really know who's going to be coming back. Um, th- this finale was kind of conceived almost as a way to maybe continue the show, which ultimately did not what, what, did not uh, wind up happening. And the way they sort of play around with that, with the idea of this liminal space where you don't know, is this the last time we'll see these characters? They don't even know if this is the last time they'll see each other. Um, it's just really kind of wonderful. And, and I think, um, you know, leaves you with the same feeling you're describing from Friday Night Lights yeah. of like these people are going off all in their own directions and this time is kind of coming to an end but that's okay they're gonna be okay exactly um, while also doing that in the con- you know like they, they play the title sequence like 30 times like, you know, it, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of all of the games that you're used to yeah. um, from from the show kind of at its peak which I just uh, absolutely love and I, I, I still think about the, 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 this finale uh, all the time you know, I I'm going to abstain simply because I was at Yahoo. I was working at Yahoo when <laughs> when they acquired Community and subsequently uh, lost forty two million dollars on that acquisition. And also um, like Yahoo screen was a whole situation and debacle. And long story short, like go find community elsewhere. I think there was another little show called Other Space that people enjoyed. Um, but I will say that Joel McHale uh, did come to the Yahoo upfront um, when there was such a thing. So, you know, he's a team player. <laughs> Good on him. <laughs> Good on him. Uh, so my next show, um, I was just rewatching and oh, totally made me cry again. Why am I crying so much about this stuff? But it's the finale of Bates Motel, which aired Ooh. on April 24th, 2017. You can now watch it on Netflix. If you haven't watched the show, freaking watch it. It's so good. Um, so you would never know it from the galling lack of Emmy nominations. But Freddie Highmore gave one of the best TV performances of the decade playing Norman Bates in Bates Motel. And in the fifth and final season, his mother is dead. She played by Vera Farmiga. He had killed her in a botched suicide attempt in season four but in season five her spirit lives on through his hallucinations so not only is vera there playing the ghost of norma but highmore plays both norman and norman as norma because he channels norma and it's like this double tour de force it's nuts so in the series (laughs) finale um He's wanted for multiple murders. The spirit of his mother has abandoned him, and Norman succumbs fully to madness and regresses into the past where the series began to the day that he and his mother came to the motel to start a new life. And it all comes down to this final confrontation between Norman and his brother Dylan, played by Max Terriot, who gives a great performance in this episode, uh, while the corpse of Norma sits stiff and pale at the dinner table. And... um, The episode is called The Cord, and the central love story of Bates Motel is between mother and son. And Dylan, seeing that his brother is beyond help, kills Norman in an act that is both self-defense and loving mercy. And as Norman dies in Dylan's arms, we see him running through the woods, first as a grown man, then as a little boy, then as a grown man again, into the waiting, loving arms of his mother. And I was just a frickin' puddle when I watched that, just sobbing. And see, one of the things that made Bates Motel so unique to me is that it took this classic movie character, you know, this movie monster, Norman Bates, and it didn't try to rehabilitate him so much as humanize him. And 
to the very end, you know, this version of Norman, he was a very sick young man, and the show allowed him to be the terrifying figure from Psycho, but it also allowed us to feel the sort of deep love and bond he had with his mother, however twisted it may be. And so this series finale did what it kind of needed to do. Norman had to pay for his crimes, but it also let him have the only happy ending he could really have. And so I just, I think it was a really unique uh, and, and perfect way to end this story. And I don't know, I just wish more people had loved that show as much yeah, as I loved I, it. Uh, th- th- this is just one of those shows that I always feel so bad about missing out on because I, I only really saw a few episodes here and there uh, and, and what I saw I always really liked. And as you said, you know, seemed to be honoring so much of, of what was great about Psycho while very much doing its own thing. Um, Kristen, is it strange for you now to see him almost giving a similar <laughs> performance in a very different circumstance on The Good Doctor? You know what it is. <laughs> I will say, like, he, he, on Bates Motel, he definitely has that sort of uh, stiffness and everything, but he's not, like, he has more, uh, a little more personality, if you will, than he does uh-huh. as the autistic uh, doctor on um, The Good Doctor. But I just think he's such a great actor. And I'm, you know, he's directing now, he writes some episodes, like, he's like, a little wonderkind. I know he's probably like 35 years old now, but he looks like a little boy. So I just call him little and, you know, uh, so, but I think he's, he really did give such a great performance in this. And that was a great way to end the, the, the series. So it's on Netflix. Go binge it people. You know, Kristen, one thing that I'm I'm really reacting to in your description of that finale is kind of the idea of like, especially so often now we are so deep into this era of having shows where main characters are awful people or are are people who do awful things. And like, you know, some element of drama does require that they get their comeuppance. Um, But at the same time, to to be able to do that in a way that also feels like an emotional high point is is really kind of a specific and, and difficult thing to create. And that kind of leads me into uh, my next finale. Um, the TV series Justified, ah. uh, on which uh, aired on FX. You can see it now streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, Justified in general is just like one of the most solid entertainments of this decade. Um, you know, this was the show created by Graham Yost, uh, uh, inspired by the Elmore Leonard short story that starred Timothy Oliphant as Raylan Givens, a lawman who returns to his hometown of Harlan, uh, which just turns out to be a Dickensian small town <laughs> full of corruption yep. and generational crime. And, you know, a, a big part of why the show was so great was that it kind of managed to balance this really epic um, scope and this feeling of this town that just seemed to have multiple continents worth of uh, you know uh, of people who were all trying to kill each other and had been doing so for hundreds of years um, with what was ultimately a really rock solid procedural format um, and I, I kind of think that, that the two halves of the show which when they were kind of operating in tandem really made the show unique uh, were kind of symbolized by the two main characters because you had Raylan Givens um who was kind of often called an anti-hero, but he was really just more like a hero with some real incredible darkness to him. Right. Um, like he was he was the kind of hero where you often felt like he was motivated to do good for all the worst possible reasons. <laughs> um, then on the other side of the show, you had Boyd Crowder, played by the great Walton Goggins in a performance that just was a gift that kept on giving for all six seasons of the show. Um, these were two guys who uh, had been friends once. They spent most of the show as enemies on very opposite sides of the law. Um, and towards the end of the show, I, I, I think that 
Justified was awesome for four seasons, then, you know, definitely had some difficulty in its later seasons, kind of finding just the right mix. But its finale is so incredible. And really, for me, even kind of sidestepping what happens in most of the finale, which involves lots of plot stuff that'll be hard to get into, the last scene mm. of Justified is one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen on television. Um, it's just a conversation between Boyd and Raylan. And it kind of takes place almost outside of the scope of the show. It's very much this sort of epilogue moment between them. Um, and it's kind of this moment where after many, many times trying to kill each other, many, many times, <laughs> you know, being involved in very elaborate schemes uh, um, um, against each other, they kind of get a moment to just talk. Yeah. And it's one of the more... It's just such an interesting moment of true tenderness. And it's something that I think a lot of shows that are kind of very action heavy or a lot of shows that kind of build up to that kind of feeling of a showdown lose track of ultimately. You kind of mentioned earlier um, the Game of Thrones, I think now is, is a, a finale people will talk about in very negative terms. Right. And that's, that's just a show that got so big towards the end and it felt like it kind of lost the ability to have characters have these kind of moments of surprise. Yeah. And I just I always think it's such a testament to um, what Graham Yost, who's a great TV producer and, and his collaborators created here, that right at the end, you kind of have the most intimate moment of the series between these two guys. And, and the last line when Boyd says, we dug coal together, I, I just I, I watch that. and I just get chills because yeah. what that means, this history they have, these feelings that they have for each other that kind of go above and beyond all the horrible things that they've done to each other. It's just kind of incredible. Was this a show that you stuck with, uh, Kristen, throughout its uh, its uh, its time on FX? You know, it wasn't, and I regret it because, I mean, I felt like I watched it because my colleague uh, at the time, uh, Mandy Beerley, was Shout such out a to big Mandy Beerley. Shout out, Mandy Beerley. Such a big fan, and it, everything you know she ever told me about it, and I would read her, you know, interviews with the with Graham and with the actors, and it sounded really like a really well done show. It was just one of those shows that I didn't, uh, you know just didn't ever get into, mm -hmm. you know, there's so many. And uh, Walton Goggins, I mean, he's such a good, odd character actor, also like a dreamboat. Like he was so good as the, uh, he's a transgender character on um, Sons of Anarchy. Like mm -hmm. he just, he really does. I just love that he's able to have this career where he can do everything from, you know, these crazy roles and these, you know, uh, interesting uh prestige cable pieces and these character pieces and then he's yeah. like he's on the unicorn on cbs yeah. you know yeah. like i love it it's just such a great and him and oliphant together were so interesting because i mean timothy oliphant who just he looks like a hero yeah he, he looks does. like someone he looks who like should freaking, be in you know a ken doll exactly he should be in the wild west and yet there is something in his eyes that is a little unsettling it, it's kind of why like way back in the day yeah. you know he played like the drug dealer in go yes so i remember that so good. he's such an ideal person to contrast walton goggins who on this show especially he's so good at playing a bad guy and yeah. you just love him you There's love him so intensely human and likable about him and they just they made such a great contrast you you truly did feel you know without ever doing something as simple as saying oh like they're very similar no 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 they're very different and what they do is very different but you just felt drawn to them in, in such well, specific way and they like drawn to each other you know it's like extrovert and introvert yes. you know introvert it's like light and dark literally like you know yeah. one of them they just very much uh are such a great yeah so i i do uh someday i will get to that show but yeah uh, i'll get and, and 
and, and someday I'll, I'll get to the shield. You know, yeah, Kristen, you know we what? all have our someday's. We, we all, all have, have our someday. someday. I'll put it on my someday list. I'm literally <laughs> going to start making a someday list so that I can just get knock it out. Um, so my next show uh, is from 2014. It's the comeback, second season. Uh, it, the fine, final episode of second season aired December 28th, 2014. And Years before reboots and revivals became a TV epidemic, HBO brought back Lisa Kudrow's hilarious showbiz satire and tragic comedy, The Comeback, for a second season, nine years after it first went off the air. And so the show follows Valerie Cherish, who is a former 90s sitcom star who in season one tries to revive her career with a dopey new sitcom called Room and Board, (laughs) B-O-R-E-D, while simultaneously having her life documented for a reality show called The Comeback. And by season two, it's very meta. She's starring in a dark cable comedy called Seeing Red, written by the Room and Board writer, and it's based on the -the behind-the-scenes drama that happened at Room and Board. Um, And once again, Valerie, who remains desperate for Valerie, and fame allows the comeback to film her every move. So in this episode, you know, it's the she's been doing this this cable dark cable comedy. It's gotten great reception. The episode's called Valerie Gets What She Really Wants because as the episode begins, she's about to go to the Emmys. She's nominated. She's a favorite to win. And uh, but just as Emmy night is about to begin, uh, she's sitting in the theater with. Uh, And she gets a text from her estranged husband saying that her longtime hairdresser, Mickey, played by the late Robert Michael Morris, has collapsed and is in the hospital. And Valerie's there on the biggest night of her life, faced with choosing between two very critical things. You know, what she's worked so hard for, adoration, attention, recognition from her peers, and then on the other side, her closest, dearest friend in the real world. And, you know, for two seasons, we've rooted for Valerie, but we've we've also really, like, cringed at her craven desire for fame and her insecurity and her need for constant approval. And so the series finale leads up to this moment where and it breaks format for the first time because she leaves the auditorium to go call her husband. And so the reality cameras can't come. And so it's we just sort of see her from afar. Normally we see her through the eyes of this reality TV crew. And we see her from afar. She stands in the in the lobby alone and and hesitates for a moment and then just bolts outside and takes an Uber to the hospital. And there, once she gets to the hospital, she, you know, she arrives and Mickey's like, what are you doing here? You don't, ha- you didn't have to come. And she said, yes, I did. And they, mm-hmm. she sits next to Mickey's bed. She's in her gown. They hold hands and they watch on the crappy hospital TV as her name is called as winner for outstanding supporting actress in a comedy series. And like, you know, it's just such a moving, lovely moment, like for a show that was often a vicious and painfully funny excoriation of reality TV and celebrity culture. You know, the comeback's ending was unexpectedly heartfelt, but also like totally earned. And mm-hmm. it allowed us to believe that maybe humanity could triumph over Hollywood reality in in the real world. And <laughs> I just, you know, it all is possible because of the writing, but also Kudrow's performance. Like she, you know, Valerie is a ridiculous person, but she's, she always remained a person, a real person Mm -hmm. that we were able to, you know, see the humanity in. And that's what made this ending all the more, you know, perfect. And so I just, this is streaming on, you know, HBO now and uh, on demand. So if you haven't seen the comeback, treat yourself. It's two, two seasons, 10 episodes. It's great. 
which is when I admit, Kristen, that I have never seen an episode oh, of The Comeback. So you would love it. I am very excited. I, that, that's, that's been on the list for a long time. Put it on your someday list. Admittedly, it's a little easier to get to 20 episodes than, yeah. to, than to 10 million episodes of, of Justified. So I have to get to it sooner. But it's funny, what you're describing, that reminds me a little bit of one of the great finales of last decade. Um, but the, the original Office, very mm. similarly, was just so like dead bleak comedy for yes. most of its run and, and I, I do think that you know when you've been that way for so long if you are then able to provide an ending that is you know sweet and very much in keeping with the show without kind of breaking through that that's pretty remarkable which Ugh. it sounds like i mean you're talking about did. the christmas party episode yeah, of yeah. the original oh, oh and he gives it she opens the present in the car i can't okay i can't yeah 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 I mean, that's that's a whole <laughs> other thing that's a whole other thing entirely Br- british office is still incredible yes Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Kristen, uh, I may tear up a little bit talking about this next one. Um, but, you know, we understandably are talking mostly about scripted series yeah. here, but uh, th- there's an end of a show that really left a big mark on me, uh, mainly because it was just so unexpected. Um, but uh, The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien, when Conan took over The Tonight Show, um, it felt to me in a way I don't think I'll ever feel this again about anything. It felt like... Um, I was a part of it in mm-hmm. some way. You know, he was someone who, who I'd watched and loved for such a long time. He he, he was really my late night host. Yes. And I, th- I, th- I think a lot of people, a lot of people my age probably feel this way. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of things happened with him being on The Tonight Show. I don't need to go into all of it. Uh, it was kind of one of the first crazy, uh, you know, TV breaking through into reality through the internet moments of the 20-teens. Um, but long story short, on January 22nd, 2000. 10, the last episode of The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien aired. And I, I've rewatched it a lot. Um, it's just kind of wonderful. It's kind of everything that you ever loved about Conan O'Brien as a late night comedian. Um, there's a, by this point, there'd been a great running gag about how he was blowing all of NBC's money. And there's <laughs> stuff about like, you know, the winner of uh, the Blue Caviar and Picasso's and, and, uh, and a car. It's just all, all great. Um, but um, what's really wonderful about it is that uh, he was kind of able to bring it all together at the end with a great kind of final speech. Um, that is really something that I think uh, that I think about quite often. He talks about not being cynical. He talked in a really eloquent way about how much he appreciated his entire career had been at NBC at that point, and he talked about those twenty years with just kind of really incredible um, eloquence and deep feeling. Um, and then Will Ferrell and him and Beck and a lot of other people played <laughs> Freebird, and it's just it's just kind of a great 
finale that obviously was not something that anyone on either side of the television had ever wanted to happen. I mean, you know, this was a time where Conan had been planning to take over The Tonight Show for years. And I think that, you know, the, the, the average prognostication at that time was, well, you know, if you take over this franchise, you know, you could be failing and you'll still get like at least five years. In right. It. So how it all kind of ultimately went down with him and the Jay Leno show and just a wide variety of poor decisions by uh, NBC, um, you know, it all kind of led to this. And I mean, Kristen, if 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 given time, I could uh, tell you my like 50 point theory for why if Conan O'Brien had stayed on The Tonight Show, this decade would have turned out much, much better than it did generally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but this this I think is really just an example of someone who was at the absolute peak of his abilities yes. um, as a television personality, just delivering something that was so unusual and so remarkable, really. I mean, you must remember, because this, this oh. was the end of such a crazy period in late night. And I, um, I, I totally agree with you. He was always like, you know, Dave Letterman was my original, like, late night love. And then, you know, Conan is the spiritual sort of successor of Letterman. Yeah. And I just always loved, you know, because he... He was very funny, but he was, he's just, he's a weirdo and he's a, he's a geek and he, and he is so smart and he's not afraid to be smart. And his humor was often really just strange, you know, like his recurring, like the masturbating bear. Remember the inappropriate channel with the guy that would play the guitar and go inappropriate, like just nuts, just weird stuff. There was that whole, my favorite, one of my favorite sketches is Mr. Matt trying to kill himself and he can't do it because, you know, he can't get the noose over his neck. Like it's just, it's dark, but it's smart and it's silly and it's funny. And it was. It felt like a victory for everybody who ever was like one of the weirdo kids, you know, yeah. in high school, like when he got The Tonight Show. And you knew also that it was something that he wanted forever. And then, you know, it just America wanted Leno. And, you know, long story short, America wanted Leno. And that, you know, he it, it was so sad to see him. Uh, have to be pushed out that way. But, uh, you know, he gave that beautiful speech about not being cynical. Yeah. Uh, and it was like he was grateful. It, it, you know, it was a devastating moment in his career, but he was grateful and he left with grace and he talked about, like, how grateful he was for this. And he's gone on to, you know, I still love, you know, a lot of the stuff he does on TBS. And I think he's, you know, I love his international travels. Like, I do think that, like, the late night landscape is, you know, sort of the the traditional late night landscape is uh, is hurt. Dead. It, is, well, <laughs> it's it's not, you know, it's not as rich as it could be without him. Yeah. Um, you know, even though I know he's technically on late night, but I do, I think this was a a really he handled it as a way where you look at the you look at this and you see like this is a real person behind this personality. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I guess for me, Kristen, what you're saying, which is so brilliant, it gets to something else that I really love about this finale, which is that in a deeply personal way, this ending just feels like the ending for me of a lot of TV eras that I grew up with. I mean, after it Mm -hmm. ended, I still watched Late Night for a while. Frankly, now I really only watch Jesus and Miro. Um, But, but (laughs) but you know, but there was just there was just a feeling to me of like, okay, like after this, the way that I thought late night was going to go, the way that I thought TV comedy was going to go, it would just kind of shift. And obviously, you know, this was still before the streaming revolution basically made the idea of, you know, watching something on late night, not just the next day online. Um, It's just, it's the end of an era in so many ways. And I just think, as you said, to go out with this much grace and wit and and true feeling um, is just really kind of singular. 
Uh, I remember then he went on a, a comedy tour because he wasn't allowed to be on uh, TV. Legally, was... legally not allowed to be on television tour. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. You know, and <laughs> like he, his fan base was there and it's still yeah. there. So Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you, 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 curiously enough, it's not legally streaming anywhere this finale, uh-huh. but uh, you can maybe track it down, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if yes, you uh, I think Google you around can. a little bit. <laughs> um, so my next entry is also uh, not technically scripted. <laughs> I'm talking about the hills oh my god oh my god hills. what is it it's the hills darren the, the the original hills the finale on july 13th 2010 and you know we've talked about the hills on this show before you and i are both unapologetic hills fans and you know this was a show it was a pioneer in the docu-soap genre which is a sub-genre of reality tv and it was also a precursor to the whole lifestyles of quasi-rich famosexuals industry that now powers <laughs> several networks including E and Bravo. Look, I'm not going to sit here and argue that the series finale of The Hills, the overall episode, was top-notch television, but what The Hills did in its final minute was best of the decade worthy. It was an admission, it was a challenge, and an absolute masterpiece in the fine art of trolling. So the whole storyline in in quotes for this episode centered on Kristen Cavallari. You remember her. She was the star of Laguna Beach and a late-in-the-game replacement for the original Hill star, Lauren Conrad. Kristen's at a crossroads. She's decided to she's decided she's going to move to Europe and start fresh. In large part uh, because her on again, off again fling, Brody Jenner, is dating someone else, and uh, the stakes are low and stupid, just the way we like them <laughs> for this show. Like, will Brody come to her goodbye party? Will he ask her to stay? Yes, of course he does, but she has to go. And the final scene features their perfectly framed goodbye hug in a quiet Los Angeles street with the Hollywood sign in the background. Kristen's car drives off, and suddenly. The camera pulls back to reveal that Brody is actually standing on a back lot. The Hollywood sign was just a backdrop, and Kristen's limo didn't actually drive away. It was all pretend, you guys. Or was it? So, you know, the Hills had long been plagued by accusations that it was fake and that it wasn't real reality. And this was the show's way of sticking its middle finger up to the audience and saying, of course it's not reality, you morons. Like, in fact, MTV and the show itself had never hidden that fact. Let me read you an excerpt, Darren, from EW's 2008 cover story on the Hills, which I edited because I'm ancient. Quote, the Hills is essentially scheduled reality. A typical week begins with producers calling the core cast members on Sunday and getting intel on what's happened to them over the weekend. An email update is sent to the staff that night so that everyone can prepare for Monday's story meeting in which producers and story editors sit around and dissect the girls' personal and social lives. From there, they determine whom to film during the week. So, you know, they were never hiding the fact that, yeah, they got to schedule these shoots. Yeah, sometimes they have to reshoot somebody walking into a hotel because there were paparazzi, you know, cameras and they didn't want them in the shot. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> the girls staged fights, but they couldn't, you know, they didn't tell them to do it. And with this finale, the Hills sort of intentionally shattered the silly illusion that reality TV is anything other than another type of Hollywood production. And it kind of challenged viewers to admit that we already knew this. And yeah. this is just the way we like it. Honestly, Darren, if viewers wanted to watch true reality, then The Wire would have been the most popular show of the last 25 years. <laughs> and I mean, Kristen, this finale, it's just so great. What makes it even better is that the last season of The Hills in the context of the Hills level of quality, right. which, which which at times had been very high, I would say. Sure. Um, last season was definitely not high. Kristen Cavallari 
uh, unbelievably, this was the second time that they had basically made her the replacement main yeah. character on yeah. the show because she kind of took over from Lauren Conrad uh, on Laguna Beach as the central character, which didn't last very long. Um, and so, you know, there was already something kind of endearingly low rent about the last season. And, you know, you just sort of felt watching it like these aren't people who even really want to hang out together anymore. Um, and I just love how... The, the final moments totally own that in yeah. a way that, um, you know, I, I still feel, Kristen, that in a lot of ways, reality television is something we're all still kind of wrapping our heads around. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, your, your kind of description of how they created the Hills, you know, back in the day, there are reality shows that still do it that way. There are shows that do it differently. Um, and there are just, true documentary series, but this never claimed to be one of exactly. those. Exactly. Well, and, and of course, I mean, the fact that it was about people living in the Hollywood Hills, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a lot Los Angeles resident um, and even I'm willing to admit that like sometimes reality around here is not really that real and yeah. I just think that there's something so kind of funny and you know yet at the same time totally honest about this finale yeah it, it, it feels like in a weird way it's smarter than all of the things that people have tried to say smartly about reality television yes. you know yes. um, and I, I just I, I'm so glad that you brought it up because I mean that that kind of last reveal is just something that I feel like that's kind of really owning everything fake about reality TV in a way that's so wonderful. And like being like, hey guys, it's okay. Like yeah. this show is never pretending to be anything else and we enjoy it for what it is. And I watched every episode of The Hills New Beginnings and my judgment <laughs> is clearly shot. <laughs> not true, not true. <laughs> Um, Kristen, uh, you know, earlier on you mentioned the Sopranos ending, um, mm -hmm. which is an ending that I, that's an ending that I'm always surprised. It's always interesting to me to hear what people think about it, um, because I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and yet, um, c compared to the finale that I'm about to talk about, uh, the Sopranos ending was unambiguous and straightforward <laughs> and, you know, left no questions uh, unanswered. Because, Kristen, my last finale, um, and, you know, is this a series finale, a miniseries finale, a, a revival finale? A Who movie knows, finale? Really? Um, <laughs> is the final episode of Twin Peaks The Return, which aired on September 3rd, 2017. Um, this is the kind of finale that I will very hazily classify as an epilogue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think for a lot of people what happens in the penultimate episode of uh, the season three of, of Twin Peaks, that feels like the kind of epic ending that you might have expected, even if you can obviously not really expect what Mark Frost and David Lynch were ever going to go for. Right. Um, you know, the, the penultimate episode, just kind of, there's a science fiction thing going on, there's a kind of epic show down going on there's literally a fight scene that happens um and, and you know all, all there's a moment where all the characters are all together and it's kind of wonderful even if you have no idea what's happening um episode 18 is something very different and it kind of reduces all of the strangers of twin peaks down to its bare essentials um you kind of have this meeting between kyle mclaughlin's dale cooper and cheryl lee's laura palmer except you don't really know if they're themselves and right? you don't really know 
why they are doing what they are doing. This final episode is essentially a very long road trip to get back to Twin Peaks and specifically to get back to the house, the Palmer house, that was the center of kind of all of the terror that ran throughout the show, the house where Laura Palmer grew up and where she was you know, horrifically abused and sexually assaulted by her own father who ultimately wound up killing her. This is not major spoilers yeah. for anybody, but uh, just, you know, just th- th- this was the absolute core fear of the show is always kind of operated around this house and what happens when they get there is just kind of astonishing because especially you know this is a a moment that you've been waiting for for 25 years yes. if you watch the original show um for for 18 extremely far-flung pieces of this kind of new season um and then what happens there is so baffling and so awful it, it leaves the hero of the show Dale Cooper um, looking just incredibly confused in a way that is kind of one of the scariest things that could ever happen in the show until the actual final moment, Ugh. which is a scream by Cheryl Lee. And I mean, I, I've seen this finale probably six times now. And there, there are parts of it that are slow. There, there's a lot of the finale that's just people driving places. Yeah, which, you, yeah. know, you, you have to kind of groove onto that a little bit. Um, but every time I see that final scream and, and you know the way it seems to kind of just shut off the world, um, you know, I, I have, you know, talked to lots of people who have theories about what's happening there. Uh, you know, our former colleague Jeff Jensen ha- has had a lot of interesting insights to offer into what might be happening there. Um, but more so than anything that I think is happening, the chilling feeling it leaves me with is just something that I think is totally unique. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just feel like there's there's nothing else like it as far as just having come so far with these characters and loved them even through multiple realities, um, just, just to feel them left in such a, a dire and awful place. Well, um, yeah, it's, they're it's, just... It's, it's pretty strong. They're so unmoored and like... And, you know, to see Dale Cooper, you know, what year is this? And not know, ugh, it's just, I can't even. And and what's what I love about this finale, which I I agree with everything you're saying, but I also love the fact that, like, you know, his whole mission from from day one had been to kind of get justice for Laura. And, you know, he did figure out what happened to her, but then there were all the other weird realities that happened. And, like, (laughs) in this, this second season, you know, he, or in this second incarnation, he realized, like, he was going to bring her back. He found a way to save her, which is all he ever really wanted. And, you know, was he really even saving her? Like there was, wasn't there like a dead guy in her living room? Oh like, yeah. I mean, like, that's, I she mean, yeah. had T- been, talk about, talk about an episode that you can rewatch every scene 10 times. And be still like, have questions about. But like, I love the fact that they, you know, this is a show that does not, you know, particularly care if your questions are answered. Yeah. And, I love that they at least, they had him follow through on this one thing we all wanted and he followed it out to its logical conclusion and he gets to the house and nobody named Palmer has ever lived there and oh. and it's just, it is a perfect, you know, mind fuck in the Twin Peaks way, but it's also just like, it leaves them, it leaves them completely, they're not in the red room, but they're in... They're kind of in like the the real world exist the version yeah. of the red room because they will never know the truth. They're never going to get out of there. They're never going to escape that question. Yeah, and that's that's a very like chilling. It's totally chilling. And what I love is that you know um, 
you're kind of saying that this is a show that didn't really necessarily value giving answers. And yeah. it, it, it's so it's and, and that's very true. I mean, one of the things I love about this new season is, you know, it only asks more questions. Yeah, and yeah. does not really. But but what it does provide you with, I think, is the feeling of, um, you know, with these characters specifically, what it is to kind of be lost in that way. And, you know, yeah. we've obviously this was a big decade where in the wake of, um, you know, stuff like Lost and stuff like Battlestar Galactica, you kind of had these shows that were kind of doing these these longer stories, these longer mysteries, even stuff like Game of Thrones would kind of have these kind of through lines running throughout it that ultimately the show felt they had to kind of pay off. And this is just a, it's a different kind of payoff. And I, I know a lot of people feel like, you know, it's just totally out there nonsense, which is a, a, a fair response, but, sure. but, not a, but not a response that I agree with because, um, you know, as much as I'm left with questions about what's happening to them, um, I know it's not good, and I I know that, and I know that that worries me, and it, it worries me to this day. Um, and you know, as you said, just to see Dale Cooper kind of do the thing that we assumed he would have to do eventually, which would be good, yeah, and for it to not even be bad, but just be baffling yeah um, it, it, it's just so it's such a wonderful way to just deepen the mystery um and, and just leave us kind of on the edge of our seat forever apparently yes um, forever oh. Kristen, uh finish us up uh, maybe with something a little more optimistic uh, uh, is it i don't know my my final i think it is this is a very heartwarming finale i think uh my final finale is the leftovers uh june 4th 2017 uh I was not a big fan of the first season. Um, I came back to season two because everybody said, it's so good, it's so good. And I fell in love with it. It was kind of a new show. And this final episode is called The Book of Nora. And the summary of the episode, which shows up on HBO now when you go to stream it, is uh, <laughs> kind of says it all. It says, everything is answered, nothing is answered, and then it ends. <laughs> and it's so true because the episode focuses on Nora, played by the remarkable Carrie Coon. And she's a woman who lost her husband and children in the sudden departure and has been sort of through the whole series an open seeping wound of anger and sorrow and fear and she's now in this last episode come to a decision to enter this mysterious machine that she hopes but we don't know I don't think she truly believes she hopes it will take it take her somehow to her children wherever they are wherever the, her children and everyone else who disappeared in the sudden departure went so she climbs into the machine it's filling with the irradiated liquid and just as it gets to her chin she yells something flash forward to australia where nora and her long gray braid are living out in the countryside tending to homing pigeons and after years of searching kevin played by justin thoreau has tracked her down and it's this desperate and desperately romantic gesture. She wants to know how he found her. She's obviously been in hiding. And he said, I refuse to believe you were gone. And they have tea. And Nora tells him at last what happened when she entered the machine. And she tells this whole story. She said she did. She crossed over to the other place, uh, to the parallel universe where her family was. And in that universe, 98% of the population had disappeared. In hers, you know, it, she says, over here, we lost some of them, but over there, they lost all of us. And, you know, so it's this desolate landscape. She she realizes that this is, you know, it, this is the universe where her kids are. So she goes to find them back in Mapleton, and she finds them safe and happy in the house where she lost them. And she sees that the her husband's there. He's got a new wife. They're living. They're happy. And they're, they're the lucky ones, she says, because they mm -hmm. still have each other. So she decides, I'm going to go back. And... 
she goes, you know, she tells this whole story about how it took her forever to get back. You know, she had to build a new machine or have somebody build it. And this whole show is ultimately, you know, a meditation on the many ways to deal with or to succumb to loss and grief. And with this finale, the show poses poses a question. What really happened to Nora? Did she cross over and see her family? Or is that just a story that she has to tell herself to move on? And the answer, I think, is this. It doesn't matter. What mm. matters is that Nora made it through her loss. And she does move on. And now, as she says to Kevin, she's here. And that's the point. And, you know, so it's this really, like... Oh, it's just such a beautiful moving scene between, you know, these two people who have loved each other across the years and thought they lost each other and finally found each other again. And she says to him, you know, I didn't I didn't want to see you and tell you because I didn't think you would believe me. And he says, you know, why wouldn't I believe you? You're here, you know, and that's what matters. <laughs> and it's just like the music is so beautiful. And like it's this has been this show is intensely emotional, intensely sad, can be really sort of hard to watch but it's also like this is such a lovely happy you know or at least like bittersweet way for it to end you know yeah. we all experience loss we all you know have to do what we have to do to get through it and you know in this case uh you know they imagined a universe where the loss was sudden and it was complete and that everyone had to deal with it at the same time and that sort of permeated the whole series with this intense uh you know sadness but then to see it end on this note where finally they made it through to the other side and now they're together and now she's here she she can let go like it's incredible it's just so fascinating to me that the leftovers it's fascinating that it started in 2014 and that this final season kind of came midway through 2017 yeah because it just feels like a show that like if you pitched it today everyone would be like oh yeah i totally get that yeah like, you're saying that everyone's really sad all the time and they feel like there's no going back <laughs> yeah okay I, I understand where you're coming from um, and, and you know, not to say that like you know things were there were hard things happening in 2014 sure. when Lindelof uh, you know kind of um, co-created co this show, but it's just it's remarkable to me that the way this show lives and breathes and kind of continues to feel timely and yeah. so much of that does come down, I, I think, to what you're describing, Kristen, this kind of palpable way of the characters struggling through their grief. Um, and man, you know, Carrie Coon was just My such a God, discovery so of this decade, and you know she's so good in. This this. Remarkably enough, Kristen, I think that between this and Fargo, like two shows in 2017 ended with like incredible close-ups on Carrie oh, Coon. Like, that's just, Fargo you know, she, ending? Oh, yeah, so yeah. good. I mean, she, she's such a wonder, um, but for the reasons you're describing, yeah, this finale is so great and similar but very different from Twin Peaks. Yeah. I just think it's an example of how, you know, you end with all these questions on a narrative level, but emotionally you just feel so completely what the characters have have gone through right and, and in this case th there is something i think really symphonic and hopeful in them sort of being together and you know what they still look great even if they're a little older i know, you know? and it's like, not it's... terrible old age makeup like it could be worse but it's not oh, terrible i mean g given given that the whole finale rests on the old age makeup i would say this is some of the best yeah. ever i mean it's 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 pretty i just feel like you know for someone like lindelof who i i, I think is i think he's very aware of like e easy mistakes to make yeah this must have been a big 
big swing being like, okay, this is really dependent on some old age makeup, some hair stuff, and, yeah. the, and the actors kind of carrying it. And wow, it all really comes it really together did. so well. So you can watch it on HBO Now or whatever. I would say skip season one, read a summary, and then just go right to season two. That would be my rec- uh, recommendation. I kind of pretty much d- did that. I, I, I watched a, a little bit of season one, but season two is uh, pretty great and is, is kind of a reset anyways. Kristen, we've had so much fun talking about good finales. <laughs> Let's just round up real quickly. Uh, I, I, there were some bad finales yes, this there decade, were. too. Yes, there were. Um, and I, I want to just, I, I, I want to just start by, by talking about one that really stands out to me um, because it also kind of symbolizes why uh, the whole revival craze um, it perhaps should be a craze we leave behind in, in the twenty teens. Now, Kristen. There were a few episodes of the new X Files mm. that I really liked, mm-hmm. really, really, really enjoyed, and I, I'm glad that they happened. I, I'm not someone who says never revive anything, leave it in the right, past. Right. I, you know, the, 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 there was a worthwhile stuff going on here. Um, but the second season finale, which aired in March of 2018, um, it's about as bad as any great show has ever gotten. Um, and it's just very clear that by this point, creator Chris Carter was very much out of ideas. Even kind of running through the plot summary it doesn't really do justice to how nonsensical it all feels. Uh, but but I want to just highlight mainly that, um, you know, now more than ever, I think we need a lot of Dana Scully in our life. Yes. Um, and Julian Anderson, who, of course, has continued to do great work throughout this decade, um, seeing her back in the role of Scully should have been a lot more fun than it ultimately was because the show didn't really give her much to do. And I just want to call out that in this finale, after really kind of backgrounding her already, there's a lot of action stuff that she does not get to be involved in. It ends with the reveal that, you know, she's pregnant again. And <sighs> it's not just a repeat of something that happened previously in in, in the show as kind of a big finale moment um but it just feels very reductive for her as a character for her as a as a performer for what she had kind of brought to the show um to kind of utilize her for this kind of cliffhanger twist um i I just that's something that has always really stuck out to me i mean there's this is definitely a a so bad it's almost good kind of a finale yeah um but but I, i feel i have to call it out because it just does so many things wrong and you know in an in a decade when you had a lot of these icons of the past a lot of these icons of the 90s return sometimes in interesting and provocative ways um this was the precise opposite of that yeah. it just sort of felt like something better had to have happened here and it's it is a big pet peeve of mine when yeah female characters like it's like your job is either to have a baby or to be raped like those are the things that can happen and, to a lady both both basically happened to her ah! in the final season which is so annoying i mean you know th- via science fiction so annoying um but yeah i i, I couldn't agree more and it's just it, it just felt like such a letdown um especially given just you know all the greatness that, that had happened with that character and and and, and with the show before all right, so I'm going to wrap it up with my worst series finale, um, which uh, is Dexter, which aired on September 22nd, 2013. And part of me feels a little bad for pigpiling on this long-reviled finale because, in all honesty, Dexter was a show that 
overall had more downs than ups over its eight seasons. Like if you look at it, really, there were two excellent seasons, which were one and four, two decent seasons, five and seven, and the rest were not good, Bob. And the show (laughs) also had a lot of showrunner changeover in the first five seasons. And anyhow, by the time the final season rolled around, Dexter's best days were long behind it. And even the presence of Charlotte Rampling, uh, playing a therapist known as, I kid you not, the psychopath whisperer, couldn't save it. So anyway, a series finale for a show centered on an anti-hero is understandably tricky. Like, do we want him to pay for his crimes, even though we love him? You know, we talked about this a little bit. And so the writers tried to have it both ways by putting Dexter in a position where he had to lose the only things he ever loved. First, his sister, Deborah, who he took off life support and then dumped her body in the in the water, and murdering bad guys, which he forced himself to give up by faking his death and becoming an incognito lumberjack in Oregon. And it was just sort of this uninspired ambiguity, and it felt, it, it really almost felt like everyone in the episode was like, oh my God, annoyed with the poodles already. Like they were just done with it. (laughs) And it ends with him like staring into the camera, like I'm still a killer, but I'm going to keep my killer instincts intact or in check here as in, as I cut wood in Oregon. Like it's just dumb. And I don't know. I feel bad because like, this is a show that probably, you know, if it hadn't had, a handful of really good seasons, people wouldn't have been so hard on the finale because, you know, a lot of shows have really stupid finales, but uh, this was one that showed us it could do, it could be great. And so when the finale was just so uninspired and kind of flat and just wishy-washy, people just really, uh, really took it to task. And it, you know, always holds up as, as, you know, one of the worst finales of all time. It, it does seem like Lumberjack Dexter is kind of the go-to avatar yeah. for a bad yeah. finale. Yeah. I, I feel like just among people who kind of love television, that really stands alone. Although yes. I, I'm still holding out hope that they just do like a wacky comedy about him being a lumberjack and just just <laughs> never never really address his past as, as a killer. <laughs> yeah, just every he's... once in a while, like in the lumberjack <laughs> break room, he wants to murder somebody who like microwaves fish in the, you know, at lunchtime or something. But like he doesn't do it. He just makes a joke. It's oh, a, I could yeah. kill you. Uh, I could kill you. Uh, exactly. It, it, would, it would have a laugh track. It would have a sitcom audience. It would be an ensemble workplace comedy where Dexter just happens to be there. And occasionally there's references to the fact that he was once a, a psychopath who killed other psychopaths. Kristen, um, that was our favorite series finales of the 20 teens. But we do want to hear from our listeners out there. There were a lot of good ones. There are a lot of bad ones. We'd love to hear what you think about the ones that we talked about. I have at least five more that I could have discussed. It's killing me that I couldn't go into know, how good the Hannibal finale was, but I we'll just know. leave it at that. Um, but uh, do tweet at us if you have more to say. I'm at Darren Franich. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. Um, while you're just telling us how you feel, uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. Go on Apple Podcasts. Go on Radio.com. Go on Spotify. Go wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe. Let us know what you think. Let us know what, what, what we can do to improve. We have a lot more exciting Best of the Decade episodes coming up. Talking best comedy. Talking best drama. We already discussed best reality show we probably aren't gonna get into the hills anymore after this unfortunately (laughs) but we'll see what we can work out until next week i should have a catchphrase but i don't so bye